Good to be here with you. I always enjoy the time uh, to spend with you each morning. I, like many of you, you go throughout your week, and and we just kind of can be filled with a ton of things. I know for us, just this weekend, uh, we have three uh, children, and we had a, a, a soccer game. Well, we started on Friday with a baseball game, then we had a soccer game, and then we had a water polo tournament. And you know, and I didn't even get to lay around and watch any college football or any important stuff this weekend. But um, but no, I would never trade what we get to do in this season in our life. But for many of us, you know, throughout the week, we're just crammed with things going on, whether it be work or family or whatever. And it's good to have this moment that we can carve out of our week to gather together and be reminded of the truth that God gives us. And and to be reminded that, hey, maybe I'm not that crazy. There's other people who follow and believe in this God as well. And and so it's always great to be with you um, each Sunday morning. We're in the middle of a series called Live Truth, and, and the last few weeks we've been talking about it, and, the, and I think it's so appropriate because we have so much going on in our lives, that the point of this series for us is that we don't just gather here and hear something and say, wow, we're smarter now, now let's leave, but we want to be people who take what we have and go into those circles of influence or the things that we do throughout the week and live out the truth that we learn and that we believe. Uh, the last few weeks, we talked about when we began this series, it's, we're in the book of Second Peter, and it, in the very first week, we kind of start off laying the foundation, uh, kind of being reminded of the message of Jesus and the gospel and saying that this is a, a life that is worth living and, and truth that will help you have a useful and beneficial life. The next week we went on and we used that imagery when Dale was teaching and gave us the imagery of a house and said, you see, these are the attributes and characteristics that that we kind of build the life of following Christ, a life that leads to learning how to love each other as we live truth. And then last week we were kind of reminded of the challenge of live with an eternal purpose in mind. Don't just live for right now and here, but know that our lives affect eternity, so let's live with something bigger in mind. So those are kind of the foundation of what we've had to this point. Now this week, as Peter, the author of the letter that, we'll be, that we are studying, he's writing and he actually takes a step back this week. After laying the foundation the previous weeks, he takes a step back and says, I, I, I just want to remind you of why we believe this truth. I just want to remind you of something to, why we want to grasp on the scripture and find truth. So today, that's what we're going to look at a little bit as we continue our study of why should we believe as followers of Christ the truth of scripture. You know, we live in a world too that truth is something that now we call truth either, uh, I was just talking with someone the other day, subject, subjective truth or objective truth. And, and we've, we live in a world now where we try to define what types of truth there are, which kind of by definition isn't truth, but, but that's just how our world is. And so we live in a place where people say, well, that might be true for you, but it's not for me, which again defeats the whole meaning of truth. But so today, how do we know that the truth we have is a truth worth following? Again, we're in a world where people, we, we kind of like to mess with truth all the time, and anyone who has kids, 
You see this all the time, do you not? I, I just look at the way my kids interact with each other, and they like to alter the truth for each other all the time. Whether it's, oh yeah, no, I, I didn't take your toy, or I took your toy. I remember one, one time when our kids were very young, when we just had two, and they were really young, and they were having, I was blown away that a two-year-old could have this conversation with his older brother. And, and his older brother, I forget what it was, they, one likes pepperoni pizza, and the other one likes Hawaiian pizza, okay? And, and of course, because when you have kids, they can never like the same thing. But so, and they're in the back, and the two-year-old, when we're driving home, we have the pizza in the car, the two-year-old says, oh, you know what, there's, you can't have Hawaiian pizza, it doesn't, it, it's gone, and his brother, a little bit older, starts crying like, Mom, Daddy said, he said the pizza's gone. We're like, you just ignore your brother. He's messing with you. He's not telling you the truth. Like, just let it go. And, and he goes, oh, okay, he's messing with me. And I remember my older one at the time, he said, okay, well, I, I don't care. Your pepperoni pizza's gone too. And the little one's like, so I'll just eat your Hawaiian. And, and the older one's like, no, Mom, Dad, he's going to eat my... You know, kids are just constantly messing with truth with each other. I think of even in our country, we, we, we have this day every year that we want to not know what truth is. It's April Fool's Day. Does anyone ever wonder, where did this come from? I mean, April Fool's Day, we take a whole day every year that literally, I don't even want to turn on the news because I don't know if I'm going to hear truth. And, and it's like the fun, I don't know why we do this to each other, but a whole day, like, no matter what someone says to you, you're just like, hmm, yeah, sure. Where did that come from? And, and I got curious about that. I'm talking about truth. So I found this, a Boston University professor of history actually has the answer. He actually did some work on studying April Fool's Day and the origins of it and why we have this day where we like to intentionally mix the truth. So in one minute's time, he, has, he can give us the explanation for April Fool's Day. So here's a clip and the story of why we do this. April Fool's Day originated during the reign of King Constantine in the 5th century. It got started because the fools of the kingdom decided to unionize. And they wondered if the king would approve of one of them becoming king for a day. And the king actually was so bemused by all of this, he granted their wish. He said, one of you could become king for a day. But only a day, because my, my, my life here is hard enough, and I don't want to even make it more difficult. And so they got together, and they actually appointed one of them to spend king for the day. And the king wanted to know which name he would take. And so the fool took the name of King Kugel. And that was the first time in history that there was April Fool's Day. All right, so there you go. Now you know. April Fool's Day stems from these fools in a kingdom wanting to be king. And again, why now we use it to deceive each other? Now, there's something interesting about this story. This Boston University professor of history uh, was interviewed by the New York Times and when because they were on on April Fool's Day said, "Okay, you're the expert in this. Tell us. We people need to know where this thing came from. So give us a story." So he gave them the story you just heard here today, and he explained this is the origins of it, and it got printed and everything, and AP picked up on it. Everyone finally was glad to know where that truth came from. To the professor's surprise, the next morning he woke up 
opens the New York Times and sees the article printed because he made that whole thing up. (laughs) It's not true. He was just a historian and expert on April Fool's Day. They said, we heard you know about April Fool's Day. Tell us. And so on the spot, he started making up this story. And being from New York, he even used this, uh, some people maybe with Jewish background had heard, hey, Kugel, what is that? Okay, so yeah, being from New York, being interviewed by a guy in New York, he thought, oh, they're going to find my deception now because I'm going to use the king, a name of one of their dishes. That's very common. And they didn't, and they printed it. And the guy who printed it called him the next day and said, you are going to ruin my career. How could you do that? And he's like, I think you should check your sources, maybe. (laughs) And the happy ending of it is that guy who printed the story actually now is a professor of journalism. And one of the things he makes sure everyone knows is cross-check your references. (laughs) Because you don't know what's truth. So how do we as Christians who hold on to this document that's really old, this document we call our Holy Scriptures, How do we know that what we have isn't a story that someone gave us? How do we know that we have something that we can trust and build our life upon? And it's something not like this made-up, random story intended to deceive. And so today we're going to look at this passage in 2 Peter and kind of find some of the reasons to believe. Now, there's also, there's this thing called apologetics, and it's basically giving reasons to believe something. We're not going to get into all of those today. We're not going to get into all of the reasons. I could tell you the Bible is 66 books. It's written in portions of three different languages over a period of 1,500 years, and yet it's consistent. It's a reason to believe. We're not going to get into all the nuts and bolts of that today, but I do want to do a quick commercial. Next week, during the services, during the sermon time, we are going to do one of our Q&A times, which we do periodically, and where you can ask questions maybe about Scripture or maybe about any of these sermon series that we've or sermons we've been giving to talk about how does this relate to eternity things like that so next week uh we're doing one of our q a's at the end of the sermon time that will be during this don't worry we won't hold you after time you'll still we fill it in with our worship and uh, so you can text in your questions anytime this week or apparently email me so that's uh news to me but I, it will work so <laughs> Um, but so text in or you can write your questions on a card and drop it off. But next week during the sermon, we will answer some of those questions. If you have specific ones about scripture or any of these sermons, feel free to ask those next week. So as we get into today's lesson, let's first start off with prayer. God, we thank you again for today. I thank you for your word. And I pray that right now, God, that this would be about you and, uh, I pray that as we look into scriptures that we believe as truth, I pray that you would help us to see the reasons to believe and to see that this is uh, your great gift to us of your word. So we thank you and we give you this time now. In your name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. Now 2 Peter is kind of, if you're new to the Bible, it's near the end, um, kind of one of the final books of the Bible. So 2 Peter... We're in chapter 1, and we're going to read a few verses here. And if you uh, would like a Bible, we have them in the back of each row. If anyone needs a copy, you're welcome to grab one. Um, And picking up in verse 12, it says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, 
And the therefore was he just went into this whole, hey, live for eternity. Live with a bigger purpose in mind. He says, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And, I've been, and you have been established in the truth which is present in you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is intimate. In other words, I'm about to die. <laughs> as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made this truth clear to me. I will, be, I will be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Jesus or with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoken from God. So let's look at this now. Um, first of all, Peter is, has been really laying down a lot of truth, and then he takes a step back and says, I, I just, I'm about to, I'm facing death, and I want you to be reminded of these truths. Remember that you can believe what you've heard and what I'm telling you. He's so passionate because he knows his time is at the end. So just briefly, let's talk a little bit about the world that he's living in so we can get a little context here. Because this point in the study uh, of the sermon series is when it really becomes appropriate to understand. Now, at the time we believe he's writing this probably to the churches in uh, Asia Minor, maybe eastern Turkey, somewhere in the Cappadocia area. Um, somewhere in there, we believe. They're churches that are under the Roman Empire. At the time, we believe that Peter was living in Rome, probably in captivity, um, likely written around early 60s, maybe 64 um, AD or BCE if you were a college student. So however you want it. So it's in that time period where he's writing. Now, what has happened at this point in history is the Roman Empire is dominating the world. And the rise of the Roman Empire, we've talked about before, um, has this thing called the emperor cult. And the emperor cult is the emperors or the different Caesars would, they have this system of worship set up that they would pay tribute. They asked the people to pay tribute and to worship them. There were temples all over the place, including in Israel, that were temples made and built to Caesar. And people were asked to pay tribute and worship of Caesar. Now, under the Roman Empire as well, is there a certain degree of religious freedom was given. Uh, in particular, when the Roman Empire conquered Israel, they made a, a specific stipulation that you, it was, you had the freedom to practice Judaism. It was okay if you were Jewish to have the Jewish faith. So it was a, an edict that was given that this is an okay thing and acceptable. But as time went on and the empire realized that the spread of Judaism and then Christianity, which was considered a part of Judaism and its origins. As that as Christianity spread and they realized people who lived in the Christian or Christians living in the kingdom were not worshiping Caesar, 
some of the freedoms were being taken away. Caesar wasn't so happy anymore to have a group of people who were upsetting the whole system. They weren't happy. They were even messing with the class system and all, the, all of these things. And so Christians were beginning, as well as uh, Jewish followers, were beginning to face persecution in various degrees under different Caesars. At this time of writing, there's a Caesar on the throne named Nero. And Nero spent about 10 years being pretty much, um, you know, pretty benign in his leadership. But the second portion of his leadership, he became very belligerent towards Christians. And history well, well documents his persecution of Christians. And that was likely taking place at this time. So Peter knew that he was dying. He knew that he would probably face um, death through some sort of punishment. And history tells us it was probably through being crucified on a cross. But he asked to be crucified upside down. And, And we believe that that happened under Nero. And so Peter saw that coming. But he also saw that persecution was coming for the churches. And that there'd be people who would start to step in and tell different stories about Jesus. So he says, I want you to know the truth before I go. It's important that you hear this. So that's kind of the context that Peter is writing this to them. So the purpose of this letter was as the world presented greater challenges to the faith, they needed to take their walk with Jesus seriously so that they could stand strong and still live lives that were effective in the world that was changing. So as we read through this now, keep that in mind that this is the context that that they are living in when Peter writes to them. Why he's so passionate to remind them to hold on to the truths in Scripture. Now, as we do this today, what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this passage. And I've just kind of designated out some different, what are the characteristics of Scripture that Peter is bringing out that gives us reason to believe? So that's kind of the idea that we're going to look through as we look through this. So first of all, uh, let's look back at Second Peter. Pick it up in verse 16. Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. The first characteristic of Scripture that we find here is that Scripture is attested to by early witnesses or by witnesses. The Scriptures that we have, the Old and the New Testament, when they were written, were written to an original audience that at the time there was a certain number of witnesses who could attest to the truths of what they heard. When you find stories of Moses up on this mountain, there was a gathering of Israelites who saw something and when he said this is what actually happened there, they'd say, you know what, from our perspective, yeah, that makes sense. They would, they, there was more than one witness to their story. So a characteristic that we find with our scriptures is there are people who would attest or who are witnesses who saw these events and would confirm them. Now there's some cases where prophets would come with a message and say, this is a word from the Lord. No one else could hear or see that often. But what they did see was the results of those prophecies. And if they would give a prophecy that was untrue, then they were known to not be a true prophet. But for the most part, the original audience who listened and who heard would say, yeah, that's kind of the way we saw it, or that is the way we saw it. See, it's easy in our world today to be real cynical and skeptical of Scripture. But we've been removed for 2,000 to 3,500 years from some of these events. And for us, it's easy to say, 
Seriously, this stuff doesn't make sense. And some of it does not. But to the original audience, when it was given, there was people who said, this is a reasonable faith and a reasonable explanation for our culture right now. So let's not take 21st century and, and look through it for that lens and say, well, no one in 21st century saw this happen. Well, of course not. You didn't live there. But the original audience, there's uh, witnesses that could attest to some of these uh, events that happened. It was reasonably accepted in their culture. Now, in contrast, Peter writes this and he says, hey, when we wrote this to you, we did not follow or give you some cleverly devised tales or myths. It's important to note that the entire Roman Empire and their structure and their beliefs was formed largely through devised myths and tales. The city of Rome came from a guy named Romulus who was a son of Jupiter who, who came down from Jupiter and, and the god Jupiter and he, he was given this city of Rome and that's how they split off from the other people in their, uh, w- within the family and these other governors and soldiers, generals actually at the time. They believed that the Caesars were sons of God that were, were sent to earth. But these were stories that were made up to make the Caesars, the Caesars actually told the story. They came and said, oh, I, I got news for you. I'm the son of God. And everyone said, oh, okay, great. Now you say, wait a minute, Jesus says he's the son of God. But we're going to find in a moment that people had a reason to believe that. See, no one actually believed the Caesars were sons of God. They were cleverly devised tales and myths. When Peter uses this language, it's a direct slap in their face, saying, you live in this Greco-Roman world where Greek myths and Roman myths try to explain everything. And they're great stories, but they're not true. There's no witnesses to these stories. And that's why today we call them mythology. (laughs) Because that's what they were. The other thing you can think of if you want to question, you know, you say, yeah, Ryan, well, early witnesses, of course, they had something to gain when they wrote Scripture. Of course they say they're witnesses. Let me ask you this. What did the writers of the Bible, especially the New Testament, gain from affirming and following Jesus Christ? Jewish followers of Jesus, what did they have to gain? Well, they were often rejected by their family and their communities. They first faced persecution. They were beaten. They were whipped. They were put in prison. We know many were crucified. Some were burned at the stake. Some heads were chopped off. That's what they were to gain. Why would you make up these stories with nothing to gain? You say, well, because of the fame. Look, they wrote the best-selling book of all time, the Bible. They became famous. They weren't leading megachurches. They didn't have all this fortune and fame in their time. They were living and starving and scraping for the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't know the extent of what would happen with their writings. They were just saying, we know what we saw and we follow this Jesus even if it costs us our life. So before you say, well, they're just, you know, making this up, why would you make something up that would kill you and not even give your family any benefit? So, There's a reason, it's reasonable to say, I accept their testimony. Now, you can be skeptical, but at this point, it's reasonable. Next week, you can ask more questions. You can ask them to Steve. He'll join us in the panel. He'll have all the answers. Be ready. All right. (laughs) 
So the first thing about Scripture is we know that the, it's attested, by early witness, attested to you by early witnesses. The second thing that we find in Scripture is that it has an internally consistent theme. Now let me explain that. First let's look back at verses 17, 16 through 18. Let's pick up in 17. He says this, We were witnesses when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. And we heard such utterances that were made to him that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now you say, Ryan, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Well, Peter is referring to an event that happened in Matthew chapter 17. We don't have time to get into the whole story now. We send out a thing every day called the Daily Encounters that gives you a piece of scripture to read and some questions. I think on day two of this week, it it has a story in Matthew 17 to look at it. But for those of you who are new to the faith or or been around forever, this is referring to an event called the Transfiguration. How's that for a nice churchy word? So the Transfiguration was this event when Jesus took three of his disciples and they went up on a mountain and something happened where all of a sudden Jesus, something happened and it says the glory of God fell on him. What does that mean? What does it look like? I don't know. It's the exact same language used in Exodus chapter 40 when it says the glory of God filled the temple or the tabernacle and nobody could approach it or enter into it. It's the exact same wording. So something about the fullness of God's presence was made manifest in Jesus so that the witnesses who were sitting there, which was three of the disciples, one of them was Peter, saw that and knew this is different. And when they saw this happen to Jesus, they hear this voice from heaven that said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And in Matthew it says, so do what he says. Now, what does this have to do with having an internal, internally consistent theme of Scripture? First of all, it's important to understand that all of the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call our Old Testament, have been pointing from the very beginning and telling the story of a humanity that was created in perfection. We enjoyed a perfect relationship with God. There was no separation until this thing called sin entered in. Humanity wanted to have some characteristics of God like being able to pass judgment. So we wanted that. We said, we want that for ourselves. And next thing you know, we feel shame. We start to judge each other. No one's measuring up because we're taking something that only a perfect holy God can do. So that's where sin enters into our existence. From that point on, we see the world through a clouded lens. And God did not give up. From the very beginning, when that happened in Genesis chapter 3, we hear in Scripture that God says, I will send one who will come and crush the head of Satan. Once and for all, I am going to enter into humanity as God in flesh and make a way for you back to me. See, from the very beginning, the Hebrew Scriptures tell the story of God creating humanity, us kind of taking a fall, and Him saying, I want to make this right. And so the whole story of Scripture is God providing a way for us to have that restored relationship with Him. And throughout it, there's hints of God saying, I'm going to send this Messiah, which means anointed one. 
They're gonna, he's going to come and deliver you. He's going to set you free from your sins. You're going to experience a freedom that only can come through this Messiah. It's God in flesh. And so when Jesus comes and is living on earth, the followers of Jesus and people even around him were saying, could this be the Messiah? Could this be him? His disciples were starting to think, I, I think this is the guy. I mean, a guy walks on water. That's pretty cool. He, he makes food multiplied. He's healed people who are sick. I mean, there's something different with this guy. He's forgiving people for their sins. So God uses this moment on this mountain of transfiguration and tells his disciples, all of your scriptures, everything you've been waiting for, have now been fulfilled in this guy. Jesus Christ is God in flesh. Why did he not do that for the whole world to see? I don't know. Why did he only pick three of the disciples? I don't know. I don't know. But those three saw it. And they wrote it down. And it became accepted as something happened there. In that moment for those disciples, the ones that really became the leaders of the Christian movement, God wanted them to know, everything you've heard about me is true. And it's now being fulfilled in Jesus. The story was consistent from the very beginning. So when we look at Scripture, one of the characteristics is it's internally consistent in its theme of God creating, us falling, and God restoring and redeeming. And he has that desire for every man and woman on earth. Next thing here. So we have characters of Scripture is that there's witnesses, that it's internally consistent. And then let's look on verses 19 through 21. Peter writes this. He says, so we have this prophetic word made more sure. And what, so there he's saying, so guess what? We saw Jesus. We heard this voice from heaven say that this is my son. That, and, and they saw something happen. And so Jesus, or Peter says, we have this prophetic word made sure. In other words, all of our scriptures to this point have been making us think Jesus is probably the one, but now we know for sure, because we know what we saw. And this was, at the time of writing this, now of course Jesus was crucified, he died, and he rose again, and scripture even tells us there's 500, at least 500 witnesses to that. So at this point, they're like, we know that this is the Messiah. It has been made sure, all the prophecies. So now you will do well to pay attention to these as a lamp shining in a dark place. Again, an allusion to some of the teachings of Jesus. And do that until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. He's using, this is just kind of a side note, but this is language of the Roman Empire. The morning star often referred to kings rising. Or, and, and he's using it to say the morning star is the Messiah who until the day when he comes and establishes his kingdom once and for all hold to this truth. And so again, he's just comparing so much to the Roman Empire, saying, no, 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 we've got the empire here, it's Jesus. So hold to his teachings, verse 20, and know first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men who by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So he's saying that Scripture is in divinely inspired. It's not a man-made thing. It doesn't even make sense sometimes according to man. And we can know that because the way, when Scripture is fulfilled, it confirms that how can you predict some of this stuff? I mean, there's prophecies that out of Bethlehem, 
one would rise, the Messiah would come, you would not write out of Bethlehem at the time when Micah wrote that. Because there was nothing coming out of Bethlehem that was going to save the kingdom of Israel. But the Messiah comes. It was confirmation that, wait, this is divinely inspired, not man-made interpretation. Now I get it. This is not 21st century culture, isn't it? It's not open to your own interpretation. This is divinely inspired, not man-made truth. That is so not cool for 2014. I get it. (laughs) We want to make it mean what we need it to mean. But Peter says a characteristic of real Scripture is it's inspired by God. And it doesn't have to be altered because it's been found to be true. I remember I used to live in St. Louis in high school and there was a scientist who one day predicted a great earthquake. It was, uh, I think it was 1990. His name was Ian Browning. And, and, uh, and he, in, he said there's going to be this huge earthquake on this day of school. And everyone's like, this guy is crazy. Um, but, you know, my brother and I were, were very concerned for our health and safety. So we convinced our parents to let us stay home. Because, you know, in case there's a big earthquake, you know. And, and it became like just a really big skip day for all of us. It was fantastic. But those schools were like, are you kidding me? Because this guy said there's going to be a massive earthquake uh, on this day. Now, the day came and went. I had a free day off of school, which was fantastic. And um, there was no earthquake. But those are characteristics where you say, okay, probably not a divinely inspired prediction. You see the difference there? So scripture we find is divinely inspired. Here's one more thing that Peter alludes to. And that is, scripture is useful for our lives today. We find that scripture, one of the characteristics, is it is still useful for our lives today, even 2,000 years later. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture that is inspired by God, it's written by human authors, but under the inspiration of God, and it's useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and training in righteousness. It's all useful for us. Now you might say, Ryan, come on. Scripture is still useful today. It's kind of old-fashioned, isn't it? Think about the effects of Scripture on our lives. Let's think of just the teachings of Jesus. Is it useful, or I will even say beneficial, the author and, and pastor Tim Keller says that Christians, as we create culture and live the ways of Jesus, it actually is for the flourishing of all of humanity. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, when we live out the truths of Scripture, it is for the good of everyone. Why? Let's think about the teachings of Jesus. Do not judge or you'll be judged. In other words, let the judge, leave the judging up to God. Okay? Forgive those who even don't deserve forgiveness. Take care of the orphan, the poor, the widow. Visit the, those in prison. Feed the hungry. Give water to the thirsty. Who's your neighbor? Everyone's your neighbor. I want you to give up a part of yourself to serve others, care for others, care about others, love people more than yourself, give up of yourself for the good of other people, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. Is this good? Is this useful for our humanity? Think of the good that Christian organizations have done in the world. Think of the medical workers who are dying right now of Ebola. Many of them are Christians who are giving up their lives to serve humanity. Is that better for humanity? Yes. See, because Scripture is useful. When we live the ways of Jesus, it is better for everyone. I have a multimedia presentation for you here in this piece of paper. (laughs) Thank you for the two people who got that. That's fantastic. All right, so 
Think of the life that you live and the pathways that you go through every day. Sorry on the side, you might not be able to see all this, but my drawings are fantastic, trust me. Okay, so think of as you go throughout your day. I think of my world alone. I, um, I have school. I, uh, what does a schoolhouse look like? <laughs> a box with a triangle. Yeah, so uh, my kids are in school, and uh, so here, A+. plus. There you go, because my kids, you know, the grades. Um, well, those are your kids. Anyway, so there's a, there's a school... Um, that's part of my life. It's part of my pathway of where I go through life. And then um, for the sake of, this is a, a baseball bat, clearly, with a, a baseball. Um, sports fields is kind of part of my pathway that I'm walking almost all the time throughout my days in life. And then, um, oh, is that, that's a fantastic, that is not a shark, that's a wave. Um, someone's surfing on, so maybe it's surfing, you're down hanging out at the beach, and then you have um, part of my life and most of yours, you have houses, so you live in a neighborhood, and uh, maybe you work somewhere, so let's have a building down here, a big corporate. I know, I told you, I draw fantastic. Um, this is where you work. Some of us work with Christians and non-Christians, where I work. Um, there's a couple Christians there. And so, so this is kind of the pathway of, that I walk throughout the day, throughout a normal week. Now, in my pathway, let's say that, you know, someone at the school, like there's someone from the Self-Realization Fellowship here. And, and over here we have an atheist who doesn't believe anything. And, and, and maybe here there's a, a, an agnostic and one of my neighbors is Muslim. And, and then, you know, another neighbor maybe is like someone from West Virginia. So you have all these different, all these different types of people in the world that, you know, that, that believe different things and weird things. And, and, and so, <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but it's always funny. I mean, it just isn't, it just, so, but as I go throughout these pathways, and I live the ways of Jesus, see, this is not just good news for me. It doesn't just make my life better to be more loving, gracious, forgiving, all those things. It is good for the atheist, for the Muslim, for the self-realization fellowship person, for those from West Virginia. It's good for everyone when I'm living the ways of Jesus. Why do we care about living truth? Because we believe, according to Scripture, when we live truth, it is for, because God has made Scripture in a way that it is better for all of us. We are all created in the image of God, and He cares about those who even are rejecting Him. And He's called us to live truth in our world, on our pathways, whatever your pathway is, it may not have any of those stops. But when we live the ways of Jesus, it is better for every circle of your life. A characteristic of Scripture is it's useful for all. So as we end, I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way up. How are we, how are we to respond? One of the first things I can think of is, one, we need to know the Word, we need to study it so we know what is truth. As I mentioned earlier, we offer every day a thing we call Daily Encounters. We'll email it to you. It has a piece of scripture you can read and some questions. Just to help you have a time each day where you can encounter the word of God and truth that we believe in scripture. If we want to know how to live the ways of Jesus, we need to study Jesus. And to put that into practice as we live. Another response for me, often when I start looking at Scripture, and I find that from the very beginning, God has created this story 
That's so consistent. And it's all about redeeming and restoring and making all things new. And when I hear that, it causes me to want to return with worship. To say, how can the creator of the universe look at me who messes things up all the time, who goes days where I say, God, I'm sorry, I don't think I thought about you much today at all. I have days where I can blow up at my kids and say, well, that was an example of someone loving. And have this God say, but Ryan, I love you and want to restore even you. I want to restore your friends. I want to bro- fix broken relationships. I just say, God, you deserve my worship. So as we end, we're going to do two things here. Is we have a, a couple of songs that we'll end with. And we have communion tables around the room. And when we take communion here at Seacoast, it's our time to remember the life of Jesus. We have a piece of bread there. And as we take those, it's a reminder of the life of Jesus and the sacrifice he made for us. To remember, Jesus, you showed us the way of how to live. And then we have juice over there, and the juice reminds us of the blood he shed so that our sins can be forgiven. And so we're going to ask you during these final two songs that when you feel ready, go up, maybe by yourself, maybe with the people around you, maybe with someone who's with you, and feel free to take communion. You can bring it back to your seat. You can take it near the tables. You can gather somewhere with prayer. We're going to have a prayer team near the cross if you want someone just to pray with you. But at your own timing, reflect on the songs, go take communion, and then we'll, uh, we have two songs to do this, and then we'll end our time together. Okay, so let's pray. And uh, just thank God for this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the message, uh, for the truth that you give us found in Scripture. And I thank you that the Scripture actually isn't just something to control us, but it's something that frees us and that is beneficial for all. I thank you that part of the story is that you reach out to restore us and make us whole. So we thank you for that, God. And I pray now as we reflect and remember your life and your death and your resurrection, that it would cause us to respond with worship through the way we live. And God, I pray that you speak to us in this place right now. I give you this time.